Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As I announced, and I hope you got the message, I'm now going to be doing this podcast on a monthly basis. It's not that I don't want to be with you more often than that, but I just simply don't have the time, sadly, to put this together properly. And I didn't want to do it in a sort of half-soaked fashion, so I decided I would make it as good quality, perhaps slightly longer, and we would only have it once a month. I hope that works for everyone. Anyway... This is the first monthly episode and I have done what I hope is maybe a bumper episode. I got quite carried away. I love the story. It's very long and I loved the research I did afterwards as well. And that bit's also very long. I could have done this in two episodes, but I thought that might be quite cruel since we're only just starting with one episode a month. So I thought we'd have this lovely long bumper episode. If you're new to the podcast or haven't heard it for a while, I'll just remind you how we go. Normally, there is first a story and then there is some research that I've done about the story, about the food in the story, some food history, some folklore from the story and the food, um, and then there's a recipe at the end. So that's what we're going to do today. The story that I have to tell you is go I know not where and bring back I know not what. I think you'll like it. I hope so anyway. So, if you're listening comfortably, I'll begin. A retired soldier set out to see the world. He walked for a week, then a second, then a third. He walked for a whole year and was in a whole new country. One he'd never seen before, one he didn't know about. He was in such a dense forest that other than the sky and the trees, he could see nothing. After a long, or a short time, he made his way out into an open clearing, and in the clearing a huge palace had been built. He'd looked at the palace and he was amazed. At such wealth one could only be astonished, not imagine or guess. It could only be found in a folk tale. He walked all around the palace, but there were no gates, no entrance, no way in at all. How could that be? He looked up and saw a long pole lying there. He raised it up and leaned it up to the balcony. He took on some daring and climbed up the pole. Then he climbed onto the balcony and opened some glass doors. He'd never seen the like before. He went through all the rooms, but everywhere was empty. He didn't encounter a soul. He went into a large hall where there stood a round table, and on the table were twelve different dishes with various kinds of food and twelve decanters with sweet wines. He felt like sating his hunger, so from each dish he took a little bite, and from each decanter just a single shot, hoping that the owners of the drink and the decanters might not notice. He drank, and he ate, and he drank, and he ate, and then he climbed up onto the stove where he was not visible to the room, put his knapsack under his head, his coat over him like a blanket, and went to sleep. He slept, well, almost like the dead. When he awoke in the morning, he realised he had had company whilst he slept. Four places at the table had clearly been used, and little remained in the decanters and dishes. He was hungry, so he ate up all the scraps and drank the dregs. He was about to leave when he saw a small door he had not noticed before, which led down into the cellars of the palace. In the corners of the cellars he saw a big chest that was belted with iron, and so he opened it, with no little difficulty. 
he was pleased to see it was worth the effort. It was full of gleaming gold coins. So the soldier filled his pockets full of gold, threw his worn-out shirt out of his knapsack, and stuffed those with gold too. He pulled out the coins he found, well, he also found a book, which he assumed must be valuable, due to its beautifully tooled leather outside, and he stuffed that in his knapsack too. Like all men who live on their wits, he didn't wish to push his luck any further, so he made a very prompt escape from the palace, in case those beings who had eaten the feast appeared, and understandably had some questions about the ownership of those gold coins. Returning to the dense forest, he walked until the sun was lowering. He wished he'd thought to bring some food, because as many men have discovered before him, gold is less satisfying than bread when you are hungry. He thought he might be able to shoot some game and got out his bow. He was startled by four blue doves rising out of a thicket. Due to his surprise, missed his shot and only managed to break the wing of one bird which fell at his feet. He picked her up and was about to put her out of her misery and then onto his fire when the dove spoke to him and said, Brave marksman, do not tear off my little head. Don't remove me from this bright world. Rather, take me to a life. Carry me to the first hut you find, put me on the windowsill, and watch, mind, watch, the moment the drowsiness overcomes me. Strike me with the back of your right hand, and you will gain a great fortune. The soldier was, well, greatly amazed. What is this, he thought. In appearance, she is so completely a bird, yet she speaks in a beautiful human voice. Such a thing has never happened before. Well, certainly not to me. He carried the dove out of the forest and took possession of a poor, broken-down hut, put the bird on the windowsill and stood waiting. A short time later, the dove put her head under her wing and started to fall asleep. The archer raised his right hand, struck her lightly with the back of his hand, and the dove fell to the floor. But then she wasn't a dove. She had turned into a maiden more beautiful than any mind can conceive of, or tongue even tell of. Such a beauty had never been seen in the whole world. She turned to the soldier. You know now how to win me. Now learn how to live with me. You shall be my chosen husband, and I will be your loving wife. But the soldier didn't really have anything to say to this. She was incredibly beautiful. They got ready and set off together along the highways and byways, and after a long time, or a short time, they came to a fine capital city, where they rented rooms and settled into married life. They used some of the gold to set up home, and the maiden was overwhelmed to see the book which had once been hers. She was going to ask some questions about that, but decided perhaps this wasn't the time. The soldier sought employment as a marksman for the king, his job was to every day shoot game and bring it to the king's table. As time went on, his wife saw he was quite weary of all this hunting, coming back soaked every day, said to him, Listen, listen, my beloved, I am worried about you. Every single day you torment yourself. You wander through forests and swamps. You return home soaked through, and we are really none the better for it. What kind of trade is that? I know how to do something that will really make us rich. Let me use the last of our gold and I will change our lot. She gave him the last of the gold and said, Go into the shops and, wherever they have it, buy a hundred coins worth of silk for me.
the soldier set off for the shops. But on the way, there was, well, this tavern. He thought, wouldn't I be able to have just one coin of drink out of a hundred coins? I'll go in. So he went into the tavern, drank a very large drink, and then another large drink, paid his coin and set about getting the silk. He bought many silk threads, bought them home, and gave them to his wife. How much should you pay for these? she asked. A hundred coins, he responded. That's not true, is it? You bought these for a hundred coins less one coin. Where did you spend that coin? I think you most likely drank it up in a tavern. Oh, what a clever one, the soldier thought to himself. She knows the ins and outs of everything, and he was proud to have such a clever wife. He fell asleep, but the wife went out onto the porch and opened her magic book. Instantly, two spirits appeared before her, ready to do whatever she commanded. Take this silk, she said, and in one single hour help me to make a carpet so wonderful the world has never seen its equal. On this carpet let a view of the whole kingdom be embroidered, with towns and villages, rivers, lakes. The spirit set to work, helping her on her loom, and in less than an hour, in ten minutes even, between them and the wife, they had the carpet ready, a marvel for all to behold. They gave it to the marksman's wife and vanished in a trice as though they had never been there. Next morning, she gave the carpet to her husband, saying, Here, take this to the bazaar and sell it to the merchants. But mind you, you must not set the price yourself. Take whatever they give you. The soldier was puzzled, but he thought his wife was clever and the carpet was beautiful, so he took it, unrolled it, hung it on his arm and went to the bazaar. A merchant saw it, came up to him and said, My good man, is this for sale? It is. How much is it? You're a trader, said the soldier. I'm just a soldier. You set the price. The merchant thought and thought, but he could not set a price on such a carpet. Another merchant joined them, and then a third, and a fourth. A whole crowd of them gathered, marvelled at the carpet, but could not set a price on something so wonderful. At that moment, the king's steward passed by, saw the crowd, and wanted to know what the merchants were discussing. He got out of his carriage, came up to them and said, Good day, merchants, guests from beyond the sea. What are you talking about? We can't set a price on this carpet, they said. We've tried and we've tried, but it's beyond wonder. The king's steward looked at the carpet and he too marvelled at it. Listen, marksman, he said, tell me the real truth. Where did you get such a magnificent carpet? I said before, my wife made it. How much shall I give you for it? I don't know the price myself. My wife told me not to bargain and to accept whatever I am given. Well, said the steward, here's 10,000 coins for you. That seemed excellent for the marksman, who knew how much the silk had cost to make it. He took the money and gave the steward the carpet. Now, this steward was always with the king. He drank and he ate at the king's table. When he went to dine with the king, he took along the carpet. Would it not please your majesty, he said, to see what a splendid thing I have bought today? The king looked and saw all of his kingdom spread out in front of him on this magnificent carpet. He gasped in amazement. That is a carpet, he said. In all my life, I have never seen such skillful work. Well, steward, do what you please, but I shall not give this carpet back to you. The king straight away gave the steward 25,000 coins and hung the carpet in his palace where everyone could wonder at it. Never mind, thought the steward, 
I'll order a better one for myself. The next day, without losing a moment, he galloped to the archer, found his hut, entered the woman's room, and he saw he saw the soldier's wife at her loom. He forgot himself and his business. He no longer knew what he had come for. Before him was such a beauty that he did not want to take his eyes off her. Till the end of his days, he wanted to stare and stare and stare at her. He looked at another man's wife, and all sorts of thoughts went through his head. Who ever heard of a simple soldier possessing such a treasure, he said to himself. Although I am attached to the king's purse and have the rank of general, I have never seen such a beauty, but I am more worthy of it than a simple soldier. At last the steward, with great effort, recovered his senses, and reluctantly went home. From that moment he was not himself. Awake or asleep, he thought only of the soldier's beautiful wife. He could neither eat nor drink. She was ever in his thoughts. The king noticed this and asked him, What has happened to you? Do you have some grief? Has something terrible happened you haven't told me about? Oh, your majesty, said the steward, I have seen the wife of an archer, and there is no such beauty in the whole world. All day long I think of her. I cannot banish the thought of her by eating or drinking, nor by means of any magic potion. The king himself desired to see this beauty. He ordered his carriage and drove to the archer's quarters. He entered the room and beheld an unimaginable beauty. She was so lovely that whoever looked at her, old or young, would fall madly in love with her. The king's heart was abreast with a burning passion. Why should I remain unmarried? He thought to himself. I should marry this beauty. She should not remain a marksman's wife. I am a king. She should marry a king. She was born to be a queen. The king returned to his palace and said to his steward, Listen, you have known how to show me the archer's wife, that incomparable beauty. Now learn how to destroy her husband. I want to marry her myself. And if you fail to destroy him, blame yourself, for although you are my faithful servant, you shall still hang on the gallows. The steward left more grieved than before. He had lost the beauty, and he could not devise a way of getting rid of the archer. He walked through waste places and back alleys and met an old henwoman. Halt, servant of the king, she said. I know all your thoughts. Do you want me to help you in your deep trouble? Help me, grandmother. I will pay you whatever you wish. The king has ordered you to destroy the marksman. That would be an easy matter, for he is simple, but his wife is cunning. But we shall give her such a task that they will not perform it soon. Return to the king and say to him that beyond thrice nine lands in the thrice tenth kingdom there is an island. On that island there is a stag with golden horns. Let the king gather together fifty soldiers, the worst, most inveterate drunkard, and let him order an old rotten ship that has been listed as out of service for thirty years to be rigged up for the voyage, and on that ship let him send the archer to get the stag with the golden horns. To get to the island on myself at three years, not more nor less, and to the end from the island on myself another three years, six in all, there's no way that ship can make it. It will go out to sea, it will sail for two months at most, and then it will sink, and the archer and the sailors will all go to the bottom, and you will not lose your head. The steward listened to these words, thanked the grandmother for her advice, rewarded her with gold, and ran back to the king. Your majesty, he said, the marksman can be destroyed in such a manner.
he told the king. And the king consented, and straightway ordered his navy to prepare an old rotten ship for the voyage, to load it with provisions for six years, and man it with fifty sailors, the most dissolute, the wastrels, the inveterate drunkards. Messengers ran to all the alehouses and inns, and gathered together such a skang of sailors that they were a sight to behold. Some had black eyes, some had nose twisted to one side, some could barely stand upright, but most of them could barely stand upright. As soon as it was reported to the king that the ship was ready, he straightway summoned the archer to his presence and said to him, Marksman, you are a brave man, the first marksman in your company. Do me a service. Go beyond thrice nine lands to the thrice tenth kingdom. There you will find an island, and on that island is a stag with golden horns. Catch him alive and bring him here. The marksman's spirit sunk. He became pensive. He didn't know what to say. Like it or not, said the king, but if you don't perform this task, by my sword your head will roll. The soldier turned on his heel and left the palace. At night he came home sorely grieved, refusing to speak a word. His wife asked him, Why are you sad, my beloved? Is there some trouble? He told her everything. Oh, that's why you're grieved. There is little reason for it. This is child's play, not a task. Go to sleep, and all will be revealed by daybreak. The marksman lay down and fell asleep, soothed by his wife's words. And his wife opened the magic book, and suddenly two spirits appeared before her. What do you wish? What shall we do? they asked. Go beyond thrice nine lands to the thrice tenth kingdom, to the island where the stag with the golden horns live, and bring him back here. We shall obey. Everything will be done by daybreak. Like a whirlwind they flew to that island, seized the stag with the golden horns, and brought him straight away to the marksman's courtyard. One hour before dawn they had done their task, and vanished as though they had never been there. The marksman's beautiful wife roused her husband at an early hour and said to him, Go out and see. That stag with the golden horns you were so worried about is walking in your courtyard. Take him on board ship with you, sail out for five days, and on the sixth turn back. The marksman put the stag into a closed cage and carried him on board ship. What's in there? asked the sailors, the ones who were, you know, sober enough to speak. Various uh, provisions and herbs, said the marksman. The voyage will be long. We'll need all sorts of things. On the day of the sailing, a great crowd of people came to see the ship off. The king also came, said farewell to the soldier and appointed him captain of all the sailors, which confused the soldier a bit. He'd never really known how to do anything, but he went with it. For five days the ship sailed on the sea. The shores had long been lost to view. The marksman ordered a wine cask of a hundred and twenty gallons to be rolled on the deck and said to the sailors, Drink, brothers, don't be sparing your wish, your measure. They asked for nothing better, rushed to the cask and fell to drinking. They got so drunk they just dropped right there by the cask and fell sound asleep, snoring very loudly. The marksman took the helm, turned the ship towards the shore, and sailed homeward. And to keep the sailors from being aware of anything, he just kept giving them more wine. It was very effective. As soon as they opened their eyes after one drinking bout, another cask was ready, tempting them to drink again. On the eleventh day, the ship anchored in the port, hoisted a flag, and began to fire her guns. The king heard the firing, and straight away came to the port, wondering what all the noise was about. He saw the archer, became angry, and fell upon him with a great fury, saying, "'How dare you return before time!' Where was I supposed to go, your majesty, the archer said. Some fool might have sailed for ten years over the seas without accomplishing anything. But we, instead of journeying for six years, travelled for ten days and did all the work. 
the sailors couldn't remember doing any of this work, but they did remember doing all the drinking, so they kept quite quiet. Would you like to see the stag with the golden horns? Straight away, the cage was brought from the ship, and the stag with the golden horns was let out. The king saw that the archer was right. He couldn't be charged with anything, and his head would have to remain firmly on his shoulders. He gave the archer leave to go home, and granted the sailors who had accompanied him six years furlough. No one could draft them for service during those years, for they had served their time. The next day, the king summoned his steward and fell upon him with threats. Are you playing tricks on me? he said. Apparently your head is not dear to you at all. Do it in any way you please, but find some way of putting that archer to a cruel death. Your royal majesty, the steward said, please just give me some time. Perhaps I can set things to rights. The steward went along back alleys and waste places and met again with a henwoman. Halt, servant of the king, I know your thoughts. Do you want me to help you in your trouble? Oh, help me, grandmother. The archer has returned and bought the stag with the golden horns. Oh, I heard that. He himself is a simple man. It would be easy to destroy him. As easy as, you know, taking a pinch of snuff. Do you have any snuff? But his wife is very cunning. We shall charge her with another task which she shall not be able to support so quickly. Go to the king and say to him, Send the archer I know not where, and let him bring back I know not what. He won't perform that task in the time of all eternity, and he'll either be lost without trace or return empty-handed for the king to take off his head off his shoulders with that sword. The steward rewarded the grandmother with gold, and ran to the king, who listened to him and ordered the archer to be summoned. He said, well, you know, soldier, you are a brave man, the first marksman of your company. You have rendered me one service. You have bought me the stag with the golden horns. Now render me another. Go, I know not where, bring me back, I know not what. And mind you, if you fail to bring it to me, by my sword your head will roll. The marksman turned on his heel and left the palace. He came home sad and thoughtful. His wife asked him, Why are you grieving, my beloved? Do you have another trouble? I've just got rid of one trouble when another one falls on my neck. The king has ordered me to go I know not where and ordered me to bring him back I know not what. Yes, this is no little task. To get where I know not where takes nine years, and it takes nine years to return, which makes eighteen years in all, and whether any good will come of it, God only knows. Then what can we do? Go to sleep, my beloved, or will be revealed in the morning. The archer went to sleep, soothed by his wife's words. But she herself waited for the night, opened her magic book, and two spirits appeared at once. What do you wish? What is your command? They asked. She said, do you know how to go, I know not where, and bring back, I know not what? No, we do not know, they said, and disappeared. She closed the book. Next morning, she roused her husband. Go to the king and ask for gold for your journey. You will have to wander for 18 years, and when you have received the money, come and say farewell to me. The marksman went to the king, received a bag full of gold from the treasury. The king thought it was worth the price, and came to say farewell to his wife. She gave him an embroidered handkerchief and a ball, and said, When you are outside the town, throw this ball before you, and wherever it rolls, follow it. And here is a handkerchief I made you myself. Wherever you find yourself, when you wash, wipe your face with this handkerchief. Promise me. The marksman promised, said farewell to his wife and comrades, 
bowed low to all four sides and went beyond the gates of the town. He threw the ball before him. The ball rolled and rolled and he followed it. A month went by. The king summoned the steward and said to him, The archer, that marksman, has gone to wonder about the wide world for eighteen years, and it is clear he will not return alive. For eighteen years is not two weeks, and much can happen to him on the way. He has a great deal of money. Brigands may attack him, rob him, and put him to cruel death. In fact, we should probably have organised that. I think, though, we can set about getting his wife. Take my carriage, drive to the archer's quarters, and bring her to the palace. The steward drove to the archer's quarters, came to the huntsman's beautiful wife, entered her hut and said, Good day, clever woman. The king has ordered me to bring you to the palace. She went to the palace. The king received her joyfully, led her to a gilded chambers and spoke to her thus. Do you want to be queen? I will marry you. Where has it been seen? Where has it been heard of? To take a wife from her living husband, the archer's wife said. Although he is a simple marksman, he is my lawful husband. The king just smiled. If you do not yield of your own free will, I will use force. The beauty herself smiled, struck the floor with her foot, turned into a dove and flew out of the window. The archer passed through many kingdoms and many lands, and that ball kept rolling. Whenever he came to a river, the ball spanned it as though it was a bridge. Whenever he wanted to rest, the ball spread out as a downy bed. After a long time, or a short time, the deed is not so quickly done as the tale is told. The archer came to a large and magnificent palace. The ball rolled up to the door and vanished. The archer thought and thought some more and went straight on. He walked up the stairs into the chambers and was met by three maidens of indescribable beauty, although they weren't quite as lovely as his wife. They said, Whence and wherefore have you come, good man? Ah, oh, lovely maidens, he replied. You have not let me rest from my long journey, yet you have begun to question me. You should first give me meat and drink, put me to rest, and only then ask my business. Knowing that they had broken the laws of hospitality, they set the table, gave him meat and drink, and put him to sleep. The marksman had a good sleep, then rose from the soft bed. The lovely maidens brought him a washing basin and an embroidered towel. He washed himself in the spring water, but refused to take the towel. I have a handkerchief, he said. I'll wipe my face with that. He took out his handkerchief and began to wipe himself. The lovely maidens asked him, good man, man, tell us, where did you get that handkerchief? My wife gave it to me. If so, you are the husband of our own dear sister. They called their old mother, and as soon as she cast a glance at the handkerchief, she recognised it. This is the handiwork of my daughter, she said. She began to question the visitor. He told her how he had married her daughter, and that the king had sent him he knew not where, to bring him he knew not what. Oh, my dear son-in-law, of that marvel even I have not heard, the mother said, but, but wait a minute, perhaps my servants will know of it. The woman went out onto the porch and cried out in a loud voice. Suddenly, out of nowhere, all kind of beasts ran up to her, and all kind of birds flew to her. Hail, beasts of the forest, birds of the air, she said. You beasts run everywhere. You birds fly everywhere. Have you heard how to go, I know not where, and how to bring back, I know not what? All the beasts and the birds answered in one voice. No, we have not heard of that. The old woman sent them back to their thickets, forests and groves. She returned to her room, got her magic book, opened it and straight away two giants appeared before her. What do you wish? What is your command? they asked. 
This, my faithful servant, she said, carry me and my son-in-law to the broad ocean and stop in the very middle of it, right above the bottomless depths. Straight away, the giant seized the archer and the old woman and carried them like impetuous winds to the broad ocean and stopped in the middle of it, right above those bottomless depths. They stood like pillars, holding the marks from the old woman on their hands. The old woman cried out in a loud voice, and all the sea and the reptiles and the fishes swam up and swarmed round her, in such multitudes the blue sea could not be seen for the mass of them. Hail, sea reptiles and fishes, the old woman said. You swim everywhere. You visit all the islands. Have you not heard how to go, I know not where, and how to bring back, I know not what? All the reptiles and the fishes answered with one voice. No, we have not heard of that. Suddenly, a limping old frog, who had been living in retirement for thirty years, pushed herself forward and said, I know where such a marvel can be found. Well, my dear, you are the one I need, said the old woman. She took the frog and ordered her giants to carry her, her son-in-law and the frog home. In a trice, they found themselves in the palace. The old woman began to question the frog. How and by what road shall my son-in-law go? The frog answered, This palace is at the end of the world, far, far away. I would lead him there myself, but I am terribly old. I can hardly drag my feet. I would not get there in fifty years. The old woman took a big jar, filled it with fresh milk, put the frog in it, and gave it to her son-in-law. Hold this jar in your hand, she said, and let the frog show you the way. The archer took the jar with the milk and the frog, said farewell to the old woman and her daughters, and set out. He walked, and the frog showed him the way. After he had gone a short distance, or a long distance, after he had been gone a long time, or a short time, for these things take longer to do than the tale takes to tell, he came to a river of fire. Beyond that river was a high mountain, and in that mountain was a door. Right, said the frog, let me out of the jar, we have to cross the river. The marksman took out the jar, her out the jar, and put her on the ground. Now, good youth, sit on me and don't spare me, you won't smother me. The archer was quite reluctant, he wasn't a very big frog, and he was a big, strong young man. But, however, he followed her instructions, he sat on the frog and pressed her to the ground. The frog began to swell. She swelled, and she swelled, and she swelled, and she grew as big as a haystack. All of that time, the march from Kazinka was hard to keep from falling off. If I fall, I will be smashed to death. The frog, having swelled up, took a jump. She jumped across the river of fire and made herself small again. Now, good youth, she said, go through that door and I shall wait for you here. You will enter a cave and then you must hide yourself well. Listen to what is said and see what is done. The soldier went into the cave and hid there, waiting. Suddenly in came an old man, the size of a fingernail with a beard a yard long, and he shouted, Hey, Saura, feed me! He had no longer given the order than at that very minute a roast steer appeared, with a well-honed knife in his side, garlic stuffed up his rear, and a forty-bucket barrel of excellent beer. The old man, the size of a fingernail, with a beard a yard long, sat down next to the steer, pulled out the well-honed knife, and started slicing the meat, nibbling garlic at every bite, and eating and praising the dish. He worked that steer down to its last bones, drank the entire barrel of beer, and stated, Thanks, Sarah, your food is fine. I'll come visit you again in three years. He said his farewells, and went away like it was normal. For a little gentleman, the size of a fingernail, to eat a full-grown steer but normal it was to him, and he went away. The soldier climbed out from his hiding place, gave himself a dash of daring, and shouted, Sarah, Sarah, are you here? I'm here, soldier. Feed me too, brother. 
Sarah gave him a similar roasted ear stuffed with garlic and a forty bucket barrel of beer. The soldier was shocked. Why have you given me so much, Sarah? I couldn't eat or drink this in a whole year. He ate a couple of bites and drank about a bottle, thanked Sarah for his dinner, offered him the leftovers, which Sarah refused, and asked, Would you like to serve me, Sarah? Before he had realised that Sarah was, I know not what, because he knew he was, he knew not where. If you take me, I'll go with pleasure, said Sarah. That old man is such a glutton, you will wear yourself out trying to satisfy him. Let's go then, climb into my pocket. I've long since been there, master. Very well, so the archer and seated himself on the frog. The frog swelled up and jumped across the river of fire. The archer put her in a jar and set out on his journey homeward. He came to his mother-in-law and made his new servant entertain the old woman and her daughters. Sarah regaled them so well that the old woman almost danced with joy, and she ordered three jars of milk a day to be given to the frog for her faithful services. The archer said farewell to his mother-in-law and set out homeward, promising to bring back her daughter and Sarah for entertainment. He walked and he walked and he walked. He walked and he walked and he walked. And as we know, it takes longer to do than it does to tell. He got very tired. His nimble feet were worn out. His arms had drooped. Oh, Sarah, if only you knew how exhausted I am. My legs are dropping off me. Why didn't you say so long ago, the voice said. I could have brought you to wherever you want to in a trice. Straight away, the archer was seized as by an impetuous breeze and carried in the air so fast his cap fell off his head. Hey, Sarah, stop for a moment. My cap's fallen off, he cried. Too late, master. Your cap is now 5,000 miles behind us. Towns and villages and rivers and forests flashed before his eyes. As the archer was flying over a deep sea, Sarah said to him, Do you want me to make a golden arbour on that sea? You'll be able to rest there and acquire a fortune. Very well, make it, said the archer. I'd like to new experiences. And he began to descend toward the sea. Where a moment ago only waves surged, a little island appeared, and on the island was a golden arbour. Sarah said to the archer, sit in the arbour, take a rest, look at the sea. Three merchant ships will sail by and moor at the island. Invite the merchants to sit with you, feast and regale them, and exchange me for three marvels that the merchants are carrying with them. In due time I shall return to you. The archer looked and saw three merchant ships coming from the west. The sailors saw the island and the golden arbour. What a marvel, they said. How many times have we sailed by here? There was nothing except water. And now, lo and behold, a golden arbour is there. Let us cast anchor, brothers, and feast our eyes upon it. They stopped the ships and cast anchor. The three merchants, the master of the ships, took a light boat and went to the island. Good day, good man, they said to the archer. Good day, foreign merchants. You are very welcome here. Have a good time. Be merry. Take a rest. This arbour was made expressly for passing guests. The urchins came into the arbour and sat on a bench. Hey, Sarah, cried the archer, give us food and drink. A table appeared, and on the table wines and viands and whatever one's heart desired. It was all there in a trice. The merchants gasped in amazement. Let us make an exchange, they said. You give us your servant and take any of our marvels in exchange for him. Hmm, he's very much a marvel in his own right, she said. What marvels do you have? Look, and you will see. One of the merchants drew a little box out of his pocket and opened it, and instantly a splendid garden with flowers and paths was spread all over the island. He closed the box, the garden disappeared. The second merchant drew an axe from under his garment and began to strike. Rap, rap, tap, and the ship was ready. Rap, tap, and there was another ship. 
He struck a hundred times and made a hundred ships with sails and guns and sailors. The ships sailed, the guns boomed, the crews asked the merchants for orders. Having shown his trick, the merchant hid his axe, got the ships disappeared as though they had never been there. The third merchant got out a horn. He blew into one end of it and an army appeared. Infantry, cavalry with muskets and cannons and flags. From all the regiments, reports came to the merchant and he gave them orders. The troops marched, the music thundered, the flags waved. Having had his fun, the merchant blew into the other end of the horn and then nothing was there. The whole host had disappeared as though nothing had happened. Your marvels are good, but I have no use for them, said the archer. Armies and fleets are for kings, and I am a simple soldier. If you insist on making an exchange, give me all your three marvels for my one invisible servant. Isn't that asking too much? as you wish but i will not exchange otherwise merchants thought to themselves what use of us this is this garden this army and these warships it'd be better to make an exchange at least we shall live without care sated and drunk they gave the archer their marvels and said sarah we shall take you with us will you serve us in faith and truth why not the servant's voice said it's all the same to me who i live with the merchants returned to their ships and set about treating their crews with food and drink, crying, Hey, Sarah, get busy! All the crews got drunk and fell sound asleep. Meanwhile, the archer sat in his golden arbour, grew thoughtful and said, Oh, it's a pity. Where is my faithful servant, Sarah? I'm here, master. The archer was overjoyed at those words. And he no sooner said, Is it not time for us to go home? Then the words, the impetuous wind seized him and carried him through the air. The merchants awoke and wanted a drink to chase away their drunkenness. Hey, Sarah, they cried, give us a drink. Give us a drink, Sarah? Sarah, drink. No one answered. No one served them. No matter how they shouted and commanded, it was of no avail. Well, gentlemen, this scoundrel has cheated us. Now the devil himself won't find him. The island has vanished and the golden arbour is gone. The merchants grieved and grieved. They hoisted their sails and went on their way. The archer flew swiftly back to his own country and descended a deserted palace near the blue sea. Hey, Sarah, can we not build a castle here? He said. Why not? It'll be ready at once, the servant's voice replied. And in a trice there was a castle. So magnificent it cannot be described. Twice as good at least as the royal palace. The archer opened his box and around the castle there appeared a garden with rare trees and flowers. The archer was sitting at the open window feasting his eyes upon his garden when suddenly a dove flew in at the window, struck the floor and turned into his young wife. They embraced, greeted and questioned each other and told their tales. The archer's wife said to him, since you left home I have been flying in forests and groves as a blue dove. Next morning the king went out on the balcony, looked at the blue sea, which his view was slightly impeded by a new castle on the seashore, and around that castle was the most beautiful garden. What insolent man has dared to build a castle on my land without my permission? he asked. He would have been angry about this before the whole incident with the beauty, which had made him grumpy ever since she disappeared. Messengers ran, made inquiries, and reported that the castle had been built by the archer, that he himself was living in it, and that his beautiful wife was with him. The king became even more enraged at this news, his enemy, and the woman he wanted most for his own. He ordered an army to be assembled and sent it to the seashore, the garden be cut down, the castle be burned down and destroyed, and the archer and his wife to be put to a cruel death. The archer saw that a strong royal army was marching on him. He quickly seized his axe and rattled it up, rattled it up, rattled it up. He struck a hundred times and made a hundred ships. 
It took out his horn, blew once, an infantry came out, blew again, and cavalry galloped out. The commanders of the regiments, the captains of the ships, went up and took his orders. The archer bade them begin the battle. At once the music thundered, the drums beat, the regiments moved forward, the infantry broke the ranks of royal soldiers, the cavalry gave them chase and took them captive, and the guns from the ships kept firing at the capital. The king saw his army was fleeing. He rushed forward to stop his troops, but to no avail. Less than half an hour later, he himself was slain. When the battle was over, the people assembled and asked the archer to rule the whole kingdom. Well, he had the army and the navy for it, so he consented, became king, and his wife became queen. So that cruel old king had been right about something. That was what she was destined for. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. Okay, so this tale is a bit longer than the ones I usually tell. And as I said at the beginning, I considered splitting it in two, especially when I considered how much I had to share with you about the folklore of the food and the tale. However, as it's my first monthly podcast, and I said, it seems very mean to make you wait. So we're just going to have a whole big bumper podcast edition, which will hopefully keep you going for the next for the next month. And I hope you forgive the self-indulgence. Our tale today is classified as Arne Thompson Uther A465, the man persecuted because of his beautiful wife. In this tale type, an unmarried man traps or catches an animal, often a water creature, and brings it home, where it turns into an incredibly beautiful woman. In some version, the hunter burns the skin or hides the wings of his now beloved to ensure she remains with him. Later, a man of superior rank sees his beautiful wife, falls in love with her, and sends the husband off an impossible tasks, hoping to achieve his death. This is a Slavic Baltic tale which has versions in many countries, including Georgia, Ukraine, Armenia, Turkey, Russia, Middle East, Central Asia, Korea, China, Mongolia, Japan, Tibet, Egypt, and Sudan. The oldest versions of the tale are from the 7th century in China and Japan. The tale also carries a little of ATU-402 Animal Brides, although most of those tales have an animal bride who has been enchanted into that animal form, whereas our blue dove is definitely doing her own transformations. There's one about a cat, and a cat kingdom, and a prince, and a, a tiny, tiny dog and a walnut, but its name escapes me right now. I haven't even asked if you liked the tale. I've based it on several different versions that I read, and I really enjoy playing with it. I think I was fascinated by the fact you could measure how long in time it would take to go where you know not where. Nine years seems possibly not enough. Anyway, it's definitely not one of the versions where the maiden at hell is trapped. She buys her life by promising her new husband to be good fortune for him, but she doesn't have any wings or anything for him to destroy. Even more good fortune than being married to an exceptionally beautiful woman, which then, as now, is a benefit in itself. I'm trying to stop myself from misquoting Austin here about men falling in love with handsome faces instead of well-informed minds. I might have failed. However, our maiden wife who I'm going to call Elena from now on, just because it's quite a long thing to type. Just an aside here, it's unusual in such a long tale that none of our characters have names. But I suppose the cast was limited, so people couldn't really get confused. The sisters of Elena only appear twice, once in bird form and once as beautiful maidens, who have to be reminded to provide hospitality. They don't seem to add anything to the story except to bring in that magic number three. They don't seem to have any other power except for that of transformation. Although thinking about it, they'd be a perfect for a spin-off if our story was actually a successful television series. They could have all sorts of powers like their older, younger sister, but that's clearly another story. Elena is considered to be a clever and cunning maiden, which Hunter appreciates, and even her enemy, the henwife, compliments her on it. 
Admiral Hunter, however, is considered a strong and excellent soldier with brilliant marksmanship, and perhaps a little on the dim and innocent side, so can easily be outmanoeuvred. I wouldn't consider him that dim or that innocent. He was very happy to break into a strange palace, and steal not just food and drink, but gold and valuables as well. He was also very happy to betray the merchants at the end of the story and steal their amazing gifts. He also only survives and wins because of the supernatural help from his wife's family, his new magical servant and his stolen magical gifts. You could say that, strictly speaking, from a moral's point of view, he wasn't that much better than the cruel king he replaces. However, he at least was appreciative of his wife as a person and very thankful for all the assistance he received. So maybe we should give him a chance, even if we don't know his name. His courtesy to his magical servant is also how he got him to join his service. So it can't be all bad. The magical creatures in our tale are traditional, if slightly strange, especially the ancient frog. I didn't even know frogs liked milk, but maybe it's only magical ones. I'm probably not going to pour out any sources of it in my garden, as the wildlife around here is less enchanting and more, well, on the rodenty side, and I don't really want to encourage them, even if their surprise faces are actually quite cute. We'll be talking about the food in our tale very shortly, but I'd like to talk briefly about another element of folklore we've brushed up against here. That is the folklore of weaving. Elena creates a beautiful embroidered carpet with help. But that seems to be more about the speed rather than ability. It's the precipitating event in the change in their fortunes when it enchants first the steward and then the king before Elena's beauty weaves its own unconscious enchantment. It made me think about how weaving is so important in story and folklore. The fates of ancient Greece, the Morai, and the North, the Norn, are both considered to weave the fates of humans, almost into a giant tapestry of life. It's said that mortal sorceresses could add to this fabric with their magic, but could never really change things enough to derail their fate. Weaving is very important in the Odyssey too, where Ulysses' loving and faithful wife Penelope uses weaving, and the fact that men know nothing about it, to trick potential suitors into waiting longer to try and marry her, thus making time for Ulysses to return. The two women, or sorceresses, that Ulysses had affaired with also were known for their weaving, Calypso and Circe, who weaved forgetfulness and enchantment, but could not use their skills to avoid their fates either. You probably don't think of weaving when you think of Circe. You probably have a totally other story in mind. But don't worry, she makes another appearance in a while. There's also one of those standard tales which explain why, if you're better than a god at something, you should probably keep it quiet. When it comes to weaving, that's the tale of Arachne, who bragged that she was a better weaver than Athena. Her descendants are probably weaving their fascinating webs in the corner of your sitting room as we speak, and I'm not sure still if that was a punishment or release. That's goddesses for you. Can't live with them, can't offend them to their face. I bet you've been waiting for the next bit, possibly, because everyone I know loves the food I talk about in this episode. May not have been so true 70 years ago here in the UK, but today and certainly throughout history, garlic is a superstar. For my own selfish purposes, it is perfect. It has history, lots of it. It has folklore, lots of it, and even its own tales. It appears in the Bible and the Talmud. It appears in the Old Testament when the Jews are wandering in the desert and pining after the foods of Egypt they have left behind. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons and the leeks, the onions and the garlic. Numbers 11.5. According to the Talmud, garlic was important. It reduced hunger, it kept the body warm, it brightened up the face and killed parasites in the body and removed jealousy and fostered love. The Talmud recommends the eating of garlic on Friday. Friday being the night, faith leaders felt should be devoted to conjugal love as it's an aphrodisiac that improves sexual potency. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to start at the beginning, or as close as we can get. As in all ancient food history, quite a lot of it is 
educated, I mean, very educated speculation. Garlic, Allium sativum, generally, is believed to have come from Central Asia, on the northwestern side of the Tan Shan Mountains, near Kyrgyzstan. The food time now has it originating around 3000 BCE, and we have some additional proof in the early use of garlic. Three cuneiform tablets, known as the Yale Babylonian tablets, which date from around 1600 BCE, list around 40 recipes from ancient Mesopotamia. These contain many references to garlic, as well as to onions and leeks. So we can assume the Allium family in general was popular with the ancient Mesopotamians, and possibly also their neighbours. It was possibly even more popular with the ancient Egyptians, and was the cause of possibly the first ever recorded strikes, when the garlic ration was cut for labourers on the pyramid due to a garlic shortage. Once the garlic ration was reinstated, construction on the pyramids resumed. Garlic was also famed for its stamina-boosting powers, and Israelite slaves were fed garlic to keep up their strength, as they built the cities of Pithom and Ramses for the pharaohs. The ancient Egyptians used to swear oaths on it, and believed it kept evil spirits from tombs, so it was sealed into the tombs of the dead, including that of Tutankhamun, where it was found centuries later amongst his treasures. The ancient Greeks used it as well, to keep away evil spirits, and the first use of wedding flowers was in ancient Greece, where brides wore a crown of flowers, herbs and garlic bulbs to protect them from evil influence. The ancient Greeks licked garlic with Hecate, the triple goddess who represented maiden, mother and crone. Hecate inhabited the underworld and had power over birth, life and death, which demonstrates how miraculous garlic was considered to be. She was also the goddess of magic, witchcraft, sorcery and enchantment, and Theophrastus wrote that garlic was placed on stones at crossroads as an offering to Hecate to keep travellers safe. It was also thought to improve stamina, and athletes were encouraged to eat it and were rubbed with garlic-infused oil before competitions, including, but not limited to, the Olympics. The original ones, not the new ones. The ancient Greeks even believed garlic could have been one of the key ingredients in achieving immortality. Asclepius, son of the god Apollo, was taught about healing herbs by the wise centaur Chiron. Or Chiron, I'm never quite sure about that. He became so skilled that he was even able to raise the dead, which made Hades, god of the underworld, a little, well, very on the grumpy side. Hades complained to Zeus, who was also miffed with this disruption in the natural order of things, so Zeus kills Asclepius with his trademark thunderbolt, while he was in the middle of writing down the formula for immortality. Zeus then sent down pouring rain to destroy the paper that Asclepius was writing on. The paper melted into the earth, and when the sun came out, a plant sprang up from where the formula had been. I think you can guess what that plant was. It's also another good reason why you should only need, should you need one, why it's important to annoyed, avoid annoying a god of weather. Garlic even finds its protective way into ancient Greek literature. You remember Circe? We only spoke about her a moment ago, and the tale that is more familiar to most than her impressive weaving skills? Yes, that tale. The one where she turns Ulysses' men into pigs. I've read it, and I think she definitely had some cause, but essentially Hermes gave protection from that dreadful fate to Ulysses in the form of a herb, moly, which is now believed to have been a type of wild garlic. See, I told you we'd come back to Circe again. I definitely recommend Madeline Miller's book on Circe if you'd like to gain a different perspective on the sorceress. Anyway, we need to leave the ancient Greeks and move to the Romans, who were big fans of it for protective herb as well, and at weddings in ancient, home, ancient Rome, both the bride and the groom wore garlands of strong-smelling flowers, garlic and herbs around their necks to symbolise long life and fertility. Garlic was also associated with fighting strength and spirit due to its fiery taste. It was considered to be sacred to Mars, the god of war, so it was much linked to soldiers, which is why it ended up all over Europe, and even made it to England, where it received its name. Garlic is originated, believed to originate from the Old English gar, meaning spear, and liek, meaning leek. 
The name we now use for the whole onion family, including garlic, allium, is however said to come from the Greek, to avoid, because of the smell. The Oxford English Dictionary, however, disagrees and gives it a strictly Latin etymology. We'll have to skip some years now, else we'll never ever finish, and we'll move ahead to 800 CE, where Charlemagne, whose empire spread from the north of Europe to the Mediterranean, enacted a charter in which he prescribed the 90 types of vegetable and fruit tree that should be grown in gardens around the empire. We've talked about this on the podcast before. But among them were onions, leeks, shallots, bunching, or Welsh onions, and garlic. This meant the full range of popular alliums was grown in the gardens of all monasteries, and in some of the larger estates of the nobility. Garlic was very popular in the medieval period. It appeared in the recipe books of the nobility, including the English form of curry from the 14th century, and was also eaten by all classes, as it was much cheaper than the spices that graced the king's table. Sauces were an important element of aristocratic cuisine, and very wealthy households might have had their own sorcery, a special office in the kitchen manned by a professional sorcier. Not a sorcerer. I mean, I know we've talked about sorcerers and sorceresses, but now we're strictly talking about sauce for food. Garlic was an important addition to these sauces. La Viandier, a French recipe collection dating from around 1300, lists several different recipes for garlic sauce. It hadn't lost its popularity in Europe by 1491, as is quote from a letter from Beatrice d'Este, Duchess of Milan, to Isabella d'Este, Duchess of Mantua. I cannot enjoy any pleasure or happiness unless I share it with you, and I must tell you I have had a whole field of garlic planted for your benefit, so that when you come, we may be able to have plenty of your favourite dishes. Its popularity did, however, start to wane as a culinary ingredient in England, although it retained its place as a healing herb, and in folklore as we shall see shortly. It does not appear in the newly popular recipe books of the 18th century, and of course, Victorians couldn't stand the smell. Onions remained popular with the poor, but garlic had long lost its culinary superstar status on our damp island, at least. It didn't really come back until the wonderful Elizabeth David repopularised Mediterranean ingredients in the 1950s, as the UK was desperate to move away from post-rationing cuisine. Meat rationing didn't end until 1954. She spun tales of glorious food in sun-kissed countries, using now popular ingredients. In the introduction of her book Mediterranean Food, published in 1950, David quotes gastronome and cookbook author Marcel Brulestin. It is not really an exaggeration to say that peace and happiness begin geographically where garlic is used in cooking. So, that's my not-so-quick roundup of garlic in European history. Obviously, there's even more global history, but I simply didn't have time to fully research or share it with you. I do have a couple of interesting non-European history facts, though. The bulb garlic we know as garlic did not exist in North or South America, and it went over with immigration. There were, however, many types of wild garlic, and Jacques Marquette, who founded the first colony in Michigan, ate some of this in 1673 on his journey up the Mississippi to what is now Chicago. The name of the city derives from Chicacoa, a Native American term meaning place of the wild garlic. There was also a collection of ancient Sanskrit documents, now known as the Bauer Manuscript, after the British Army officer who bought them from a trader, which contain an incomplete treatise on garlic and its medical uses, and includes a mythical origin story for garlic, explaining that the king of the demons drank the elixir of immortality, and that Lord Vishnu cut off his head as a punishment. The drops of blood became garlic when they fell to earth. This is why Brahmins are forbidden to eat it, because it originates from a body, that of the demon king. However, it also includes a workaround to reabsorb the goodness of garlic if it's forbidden to you because of your religion. You simply stop the cow from eating for three days, then feed her one part garlic stalks to two parts grass. Those forbidden the herb itself will be permitted to eat the curds and ghee made from the garlic-infused milk. It does seem a little bit unfair on the cow, though. Now we've broached the mythology of garlic. I feel like I can now move on to some more of the same. 
Garlic is very rich in mythology and has many origin stories. I love this one from Palestine, where garlic is connected to fertility and the tree of life, and how it had to be made small to reduce the num pe numbers of people multiplying on earth. Once, ladies, long ago, the garlic grew very tall, so tall that the top of it couldn't be seen. Then this blessing became a curse, for there were too many people in the world. There was no room in the world for them all. So God in his mercy shortened the garlic, and it has been small ever since. But it is still good to eat for health and long life, and good too against the eye. Those must have been strange days, you say, when the garlic was tall. According to some old Christian myths, garlic is demonic, springing from Satan's left footprint upon his first step on earth after being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Some sources say that this is mirrored in Muhammad's writings too. Muhammad definitely recommended staying away from the mosque after eating garlic, onions and leeks, although this is more likely to be about practising good hygiene and consideration for others. I've already mentioned the Greek origin story with Asclepius, but there's some half-Greek nymphs I've forgotten to mention. Nereides were beautiful, half-divine, half-human creatures who envy the joys of wedlock and childbirth, and their jealous behaviour can mean the ruin of an unprotective wife or mother-to-be. Protection consisted of wearing amulets made of garlic and placing bunches of garlic over the door of homes where women were kept confined during the 40-day period before marriage. Garlic is used for protection often throughout all of Europe. In Greece, garlic is still believed to give away evil spirits and devils and it scares them. Traditionally, Greeks carried it in their clothes or hung it on braided bunches in the eaves of their homes to keep away malevolent forces. In Spain, bullfighters traditionally carried garlic to protect themselves from the bull's charge. Can't imagine how it being that effective when there's a bull trampling on your head. But what do I know? In Sweden, bridegrooms used to sow a clove of garlic and a sprig of rosemary into their wedding clothes to avert the evil eye. Another tale from Sweden features the Huldra, who shared some characteristics of the Nereides, but had the tendency to go after women's husbands rather than the women themselves. In this instance, the Huldra Talamaja, or pine tree spirit, had used her powers to attract and seduce her husband. Every night this husband went to her in the forest to frolic together until he was too exhausted to work the next day. His wife had no power to keep him in the house once the Huldra had called to him. Extremely annoyed by the loss of her love and her income, one night the wife went out and met the Holdra before she reached the house, asked the Holdra how one could keep a bull from wandering off at night. The Holdra told her to give the bull garlic, grass from the north side of the chimney and some other ingredients. The wife gave this combination to her man a bull and he stopped responding to the Holdra's call. There's apparently a Romany love spell that calls for a lovesick person to plant garlic in a red clay pot while repeating the name of the person they desire. Every day at sunrise and sunset, the person should water the plant and recite the following incantation. As this root grows, let the heart off, insert name here, turn unto me. A variation of this spell calls for the spellcaster to include a drop of his or her hoten blood. This could take some time, as garlic is quite slow growing. If the spell works, but you realise you're not the one for you, you can use this method to get rid of your love. Stick two cross pins in a garlic bulb and place it at crossroads. Bring the unrequited lover to the place, and when they cross it, they'll lose interest. As well as bringing protection in person, dreaming of garlic has been interpreted as a sign that the dreamer is searching for security and love, and that they will need their head over their heart. A dream of wandering through a garlic patch signifies a woman will marry from practicality rather than love. To dream that you are walking through a garlic patch suggests that you will rise from poverty to prosperity. I appreciate that I have avoided the folklore elephant in the room, vampires. I was going to ignore them completely because everyone knows that garlic and vampires don't mix. But I did find some slightly different folklore beliefs to share. Did you know that there is a vampire known as the Dakhanavar from the folklore of Armenia? It's said to protect the valley around Mount Ararat from intruders. 
Travellers in the area carry cloves of garlic in their pockets and mashed garlic paste on their shoes. The Dak Hanavar is known to his victims in their sleep and sucks the blood from their feet. Hence the shoe garlic paste. So to protect themselves if forced to camp outside, they roast entire garlic bulbs in the flames of their campfire. Campfire. The combination apparently keeps the Dak Hanavar away. Also, you get roasted garlic to add interest to your camping snacks. I must add, however, that the original report of this vampire in 1854 doesn't mention garlic at all. This only comes in from the author Jonathan Mabry in 2006. I suppose we should move on to Transylvania, as I've clearly been avoiding it. Most people know about Bram Stoker's Dracula and how dangerous garlic is to his kind. But did you know that St Andrew is supposed to be the person that gave garlic to mankind as a weapon against vampires? As well as the patron saint of Scotland, he is also the patron saint of wolves and Romania and is said to protect against wolf attacks, which would presumably be more useful in countries that actually have any wolves. It was a huge relief to me when I was small that the British Isles did not have any wolves. I was irrationally scared of them. Too many fairy tales, possibly. As far as I know, there are no current plans to reintroduce them here. Anyway, let's pop back to Romania. On the 29th of November, that's St Andrew's Eve, to everyone who doesn't know, Night of Strigoi is celebrated, as it's believed the barrier between the visible and the invisible world disappears, allowing ghosts and spirits to pass through. To protect themselves, people eat a lot of garlic and spread garlic paste in the shape of the crucifix on the front door. At night, there's a party known as the Watch of the Garlic Party. The house selected to host the party is prepared in advance by smearing garlic all around that doors and windows. Every young woman brings three garlic bulbs to the party. The bulbs are collected and placed in a pot that's guarded by candlelight by the oldest woman in the house during the party. People dance till dawn when the pot is taken outside and dancing resumes around it. After the dancing finishes, the garlic is given out to all and taken home where it protects the inhabitants against illness or evil. Basil is also used for protection and in the cooking on this night and poppy seeds are spread around outside, but we are all about the garlic. Just in case you think all Romanian garlic traditions are about protection from vampires, I have one that isn't. Young women also baked not shaped breads and they put garlic in the middle on St Andrew's Eve. At home they put this bread in a warm place. If within a week the garlic had risen, they would be lucky in love and marriage. I think I'm going to stop there. There's only so much more, so much more. But I think we have to know where to leave gracefully, possibly while I still have listeners. If all of this garlic has given you an appetite, then you'll enjoy this episode's recipe. Spaghetti al olio e aglio. Spaghetti with oil and garlic, but with a couple of added extras to make it sensational. I've essentially had to do two recipes in one, so that people who are not fans of anchovy can still make it. It still tastes good, but it's not quite so good. I must add that it's not authentic, but I'm not Italian, so I suppose it doesn't have to be. I really hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, I suppose this month's episode. I know it's been a bit longer than normal, um, but I think, or at least I hope you've enjoyed that. If not, maybe give me some feedback gently, gently, please. Um, you know you can get hold of me on Twitter or on um, Instagram, where I'm at Fairy Tales Food on both. Or you can email me via the contact form on my website. That's hestierskitchen.co.uk. The recipes are all there as well, as well as the blog posts that support these um, episodes. There's also lots of other information. Some of it's about cheese, if that interests you. If you'd like to let, help other people find me, you can give me five stars on Apple Podcasts. People like that, apparently. Um, if not, just enjoy listening. And I'll hopefully be back in another month to share with you another episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>